when the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. Can the church of God say amen? Amen. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 for our time this morning as we continue our series through the book of Genesis. We're going to read all of chapter 3, and then we're just going to be focused on verses 1 through 5. And then after this week, we're going to begin our series uh, as we consider uh, the, the, the coming of Christ and his, his advent, his incarnation. Um, and then we'll be back in uh, the book of Genesis in January. And we'll continue to pick up and complete the rest of chapter 3. But since we have that break, I'm just going to read chapter 3 for us all together. And you knowing the story and being familiar with it, uh, I won't feel the need to explain that all yet. You can wait till January for the rest of it as we focus primarily on verses 1 through 5 in our time this morning. But with that said, let's read the word of God together. This is Genesis chapter 3. If you grab the Bible uh, underneath the chair in front of you, that will be on page 2. And I never get tired of saying page 1 or page 2 when we come together and open God's word. I love it. So we're on page 2. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are the Lord God who made heaven and earth and all the things in them. Lord, you are the one who made man in your image. You are the one who placed man graciously in the garden paradise that you prepared for him and the woman to enjoy your presence. You are the one who every good and perfect gift has come from. You are the one who gave our first parents one command to keep in that garden. We are the ones, O oh Lord, who have sinned against you. Our first parents, O oh God, did not listen to your voice. And we ourselves, O oh Lord, fail constantly to listen to your voice. Lord, we ask, and Lord, we praise you. Lord, we ask you to forgive us of this sin. And we praise you, Lord, that when Adam and Eve sinned, instead of destroying them, Lord, you made them a promise. You made them a promise that you would send one to crush the ancient serpent, the devil, who is the deceiver of our first parents in the whole world. You provided a way for, for them and us to be forgiven, to blot out our sins through the shed blood of your son. But now, O oh Lord, as we wait and as we turn and live in your son and join in following him, we recognize, Lord, that we are in the middle of a war with a real and ancient enemy who seeks our harm who seeks, O oh Lord, to undermine our faith in you, who seeks to lead us astray, who seeks to outwit us. But we praise you, Lord, because you have not left us without your clear word. You have not left us without your voice. You have not left us in ignorance to his schemes. But even in including this passage, which we get to read before us, Lord, you make us wise to his schemes. And you give us the ability to be better prepared to stand firm, resist the devil that he might flee from us. 
So, Lord, as we read and study your word this morning, please open our eyes to the truth and give us understanding of the serpent's schemes that we might not fall prey to his deceit. But may we overcome temptation as we wait for the day when you return and conquer him forever. We ask this as your people under the grace and the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Everything was good. Everything was good. If you read Genesis chapter 1, it was good, it was good, it was good, and God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. He had made all things in six days and rested on the seventh. He had made man and given him the gift of of woman as well. If Genesis 1 and 2 were marked by joy and, and, and goodness and man and woman being together and united with one another in a way with no shame and no guilt. In chapter 3, we see the reversal of these things. It's marked by sorrow and shame and guilt. If chapter 2 speaks about how God made everything and he gave it to man and gave man dominion over it all, then chapter 3 shows how man, seeking to be wise in his own eyes, was willing to give it all away. The fall of man is the saddest, most grievous moment in the history of humankind. We still today live under the effects of this fall. Sin and death enter into the world in this text, and they are not finally eradicated until the very last two chapters of the Bible. Revelation chapter 21 and 22. There we get, there, uh, we get the promise of the future ultimate defeat of Satan in Revelation chapter 12, or excuse me, chapter 20, verse 10, where it says, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they shall be tormented day and night forever. If this third chapter of the book of the Bible promises Satan's defeat in the future. Revelation makes it clear to us that this future defeat is still being waited for. But since that day has not come, we find ourselves with a present and active enemy. The same enemy that Adam and Eve encountered in the garden is the same enemy that is lurking to destroy and to devour you and I. According to the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter 5, verse 8 and 9, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter, after the death and resurrection of Christ, writing this letter indicates that Satan is not bound, but he's freely roaming, seeking to devour and undermine faith. And the apostle John agrees, 1 John 5, 19, he says that we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
And the Apostle Paul agrees as well, saying that all of us were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. Who is he talking about there? He's talking about Satan. He's talking about that ancient serpent, the devil, who is the prince of the power of the air. And Paul goes on to say that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the of body and mind. And as we did this, we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were following in a groove, going along a course that whether we realized it or not was a course that had been charted out and is a course that had been trailblazed and it is a, a wake which the enemy, the serpent, would pull all of mankind. Likewise, Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And Paul could say in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that he had forgiven people. Uh, and he says, if I've forgiven anything, it has been done for your sake in the presence of Christ. Verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. That's an important phrase. Satan then is still seeking to deceive and outwit people. And many people are ignorant of his schemes. But Paul says that we are not as apostles and that you as the church should not be either. Paul says a little bit later in the same book, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, I feel a divine jealousy for you speaking to the Corinthians, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So the reason that I, I bring together these passages and read these passages is to make it abundantly clear that it is to our great peril, brothers and sisters in Christ, it is to our great peril, friend, if you're here visiting for the first time or just beginning to think about the, the word of God and about Jesus and about, about the gospel. It is to our great peril to be ignorant of either the serpent or his schemes. How many of you like to be ignorant? Not a single person. Good. Good. How many of you like to be outwitted? I'm not seeing any hands. How many of you like to be led astray? I think he was itching his face. I won't, uh, uh, I won't take that as a hand. <laughs> if you don't want to be ignorant, if you do not want to be outwitted, if you do not want to be led astray, if you do not want to be ignorant of the serpent's designs, then you need to pay close attention to this text. You need to read it. You need to understand it. You need to study it. You need to devour it. And because this text provides for us recorded history. And it's recorded for us so that we can remember it, so that we can learn from it, so that we will not repeat it or fall victim to the 
failures that our first parents made. So the main idea of this text is in this sermon is that if we are ignorant of the serpent and his schemes, we will be easily outwitted, deceived, and led astray from pure devotion to Christ. And that's really what he is after. Lead you astray from pure devotion to Christ. That simple faith that you have in God, Satan hates it and he wants to destroy it and he wants to undermine it. And so first then, we're gonna have some points here uh, as we work through this text. I have two points for you and each of these points has three sub points. If you have a bulletin with notes, it has some blanks for you so you can work uh, for some of these, these answers. The first point is very simple. Don't be ignorant of the serpent. Don't be ignorant of the serpent. If we are ignorant of the serpent, we are going to be easily outwitted, deceived, and led astray from pure devotion to Christ. And there's three things in particular about the serpent that we must not be ignorant of. And the first thing that we must not be ignorant of when it comes to the serpent is the serpent's presence. The serpent's presence. Verse 1 begins with these three words in English. Now the serpent. Was there a serpent present in the garden? Yes. How did that serpent get there? It's not said. We're not told. But what is undeniable is that the serpent is present in the garden. We are today in a much different place than Adam and Eve were. But still, this basic point is incredibly important. We must not ignore the fact that there is a serpent and that he is present. C.S. Lewis, in the, the, pre the preface to his Screwtape Letters, says that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall when it comes to the topic of devils or demons. He says one is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. He says they themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both heirs and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. What is he underscoring? What is he saying here? He's making the point that Satan is quite pleased for you to be ignorant about his presence and his existence. Because when, it, when you do not even realize, when you do not even know that you have an enemy, you are in an easy place. Oh, you are, you, are, you are lunch meat. You don't know. Because he has full freedom to operate however he wills. He, can move. he doesn't even have to hide himself. He doesn't even have to be, you know, uh, uh, doesn't even barely have to be so, as sneaky as he would otherwise. He is totally free to operate and to attack, and to undermine, and to deceive, and to keep you there. And he's happy to keep you right there in ignorance. Don't be ignorant of the serpent's presence. But next we must go on to not also be ignorant of the serpent's power. It's one thing to be aware that there's a serpent and that, that, there, that he is present, that he's active in the world, but it's another thing to be aware of his power. And those who are ignorant uh, of his existence uh, are, are, are 
because of that, also ignorant of his capabilities. Adam and Eve find out very quickly the capabilities of this serpent. But before they do, the narrator actually gives us two details that show the serpent's power. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And then second, it says that, and he, speaking of the serpent, spoke to the woman. So the first detail is this serpent is, is crafty. And the, word that this, the way that uh, this word crafty can be used can be used in a good way or can be used in a bad way. It could speak of being sort of like prudent. Uh, it could speak of being, being wise uh, in a good way or in a bad way. Think of Matthew 10, verse 16. Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So does Jesus want us, you know, if, if it was, you know, a sin to be wise or crafty in that sense, would he tell us to do that? No, absolutely not, right? Or Paul in Romans 16, verse 19, saying, I want you to be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil. And so at this point, we don't know if the craftiness of this serpent is for good or for ill. We're in the same place that I think Adam and Eve were. Just as we're reading this narrative, we're in the same place that they are, and they're probably trying to figure out this exact same thing. But as soon as they hear him speak, his evil, I'll put it this way, his evil serpent lisp betrays him. You see, when he opens his mouth, you can begin to tell. And this brings us to the serpent's posture. This serpent can speak. And he's crafty and he puts together words. And he has power to communicate and to try to convince and to try to persuade and to try to influence. This is his power. And look, I, I, I don't know if it was a normal thing for Adam and Eve to talk to the animals in the garden. I, I, I'm thinking that it wasn't. But, but I'm also thinking that, that maybe Adam and Eve are, are wondering the same thing. Is this going to be a normal experience in the garden? They don't, do, they, like, do they know any better in that moment when the serpent comes and starts speaking to them? So how do they know whether this serpent, this craftiness, is for good or for ill. This leads us to not be ignorant of the serpent's posture. When I mention the serpent's posture here, I'm speaking about the way that the serpent carries himself or the serpent's way of living. And this is, most importantly, to be judged. Anyone's posture or way of life or, or uh, the way that they, they position themselves, the, the, the ultimate way to tell whether it's for good or for ill is to, to discern whether their posture is open or closed to God. Is he hostile or friendly to God and to God's word? Is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? Does he, does he look like he's on our side? Or does he look like he's against us? Does he look like he's here for our good? Or does he look like he's here to cause us harm? And while it may have been difficult for Adam and Eve to discern that just by looking at the serpent, when he began to speak, there was venom under his lips and he spoke with a forked tongue. 
asking questions that distorted the word of God, called into question the goodness of God. Through the serpent's guidance and his lying, he would seek to undermine the word of God, convince the woman and her husband to do the exact opposite of what God had told them to do. God had made his instruction very clear to Adam and Eve. Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord says to Adam, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So how can you tell the posture of this serpent, whether he's for God or against God? Well, when he begins to speak, out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth will speak. How can we tell if he's bent on evil or not? Well, because God had already given a clear command. He'd given a benevolent uh, uh, provision that, that you can eat from all the trees of the garden. And he also gave one prohibition that there's one tree that you must not eat from or you will surely die. And so the serpent comes and he undermines that. And he speaks in contradiction to that. And so if we grant that the serpent was crafty and he knew what he was doing and he knew that God had commanded Adam about that tree and, and it, it, it would then seem to follow that, that the serpent's posture was such that he desired their death. And he is so crafty that he did not desire to kill them himself. He was pleased because he was wise to evil to find a way to get them to have God put them to death. This is why Jesus says in John 8, 58, that he was a liar from the beginning, that he is the father of lies, and that he was a murderer from the beginning because he hated Adam and Eve in his heart. He hated God and he hated Adam and Eve, and this, came to, this was, was shown through his speech and his actions. His posture became clear. He was bent toward evil, toward deception, toward destruction. And so listen to this. If you don't think that, 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 that Satan or the serpent exists and is powerful, uh, you, you may not be all that concerned about his posture. But if you understand that he exists and that he's powerful and that his posture is hell-bent on bringing you to hell with him, then you all of a sudden understand the importance, the urgency of not being deceived by him and not falling for his schemes. So do not be ignorant of the serpent. Grasp how important it is to understand who it is that we are up against, that what a threat he poses to us, to our relationship with God, to our happiness now, and to our eternal well-being. He wants to take it all from you. He wants to defraud you and defrock you and to take everything that you have that God has given to you. So don't be ignorant of the serpent. Don't be ignorant of his presence, his power, his posture, or you will be easily deceived, outwitted, and led astray from pure devotion to Christ. This leads to our second point now. Hopefully we are not, we are now not ignorant of the serpent. But we also must not be ignorant of his schemes. Don't be ignorant of his schemes. This serpent's schemes are recorded and it's made evident before us. He is so crafty and wise to evil 
that he can use his words, that he used them to tempt, to deceive, and to cause the fall of our first parents with only three sentences. That's how effective his schemes were. And if we want to be mentally and spiritually prepared to stand firm against his efforts to tempt us, to deceive us, and lead us astray, then we cannot afford to be ignorant of his schemes. This passage records the serpent's success in causing our first parents to fall. But by God's grace, his actions have been recorded for us. So we would do well to study the game film. If we want to know what we're going to be up against. If we do, we will not be ignorant of his devices because he runs the same plays, church. Let's consider three of the, his schemes. And as we do it, keep in mind that these were all bunched together. Uh, it came as a sort of volley or, or a shotgun blast together. They, they, they came all on the same occasion. And so even though we're working through them one by one together, they form a subversive and seductive three-pronged attack. You need to be aware and you need to watch out for it. And so first, don't be ignorant of his schemes. This first scheme is that he distorts the word of God to raise doubt. He distorts the word of God to raise doubt. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And so here the serpent speaks and his first word uh, in, in Hebrew is really or actually. And it, and it, has, the, it has the idea uh, that it, Satan's coming and he's, he's distorting what God had said to Adam. And he's repeating this distortion uh, to Eve in order to raise doubt in God's mind. Is it really the case? Is it really the case that God said that you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? Or did God really say and prohibit you from eating of all the trees in the garden? Satan distorts the word of God to raise doubt in Eve's mind. When we put these statements side by side, we see this, the serpent's distortion and this insidious twist. Remember, Genesis 2, 16, God says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree. What an, ab what, what an abundant provision. You can eat from it all. But there is one tree that you cannot eat from. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now compare that with what the serpent does and says, how he distorts the word. He says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What, is, what did this serpent leave out? I don't know, maybe the abundantly generous, incredibly liberal provision that God made, he totally neglected it on purpose 
to twist and distort the word of God. And then he, 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 he clung to the, the small, the narrow prohibition that was, uh, was, was given by God. Satan latched onto it to twist it to make God sound stingy and meagerly and evil and not benevolent and needlessly restrictive. Is it really the case that God would not let you eat from all of these trees? How could he be a good God? How could he really love you? How could he really have caring and concern from you and yet make such a prohibition and place it upon you? How could he do such a thing? In fact, if I were God, I'd let you eat from every tree. No exceptions. See him distort the word of God and raise doubt? This is what he does, church. This is what he does. He raises doubt about the goodness of God and the goodness of his word. He still does this today. If you were to look at your life right now, survey your life right now, do you hear the voice of others speaking against or questioning what God has spoken in such a way that doubt is raised in your heart? about his goodness, about his character? Has God said to only have one wife? How restrictive. Has God said for, for, for sex to only be enjoyed inside the covenant of marriage? How, how limiting. Is, has God said that, that, that we are only one of two genders and not, not five or 500? So narrow-minded. If I were God, let you be anything you wanted to be. No exceptions. Any exceptions are overbearing. Any exceptions are restrictive. Any exceptions are, are not of a loving God. Any exceptions are killing our vibes and they don't have our best interests in mind. Maybe God's not as good as we thought. Can you hear the voices? Can you discern what they're saying to you? How they're seeking to undermine your trust and faith in God to introduce doubt and to get you to question the goodness and character of God. Pay attention. Don't be ignorant of the serpent and his schemes. He distorts the word of God to raise doubt. But not only does he distort the word of God to raise doubt, we see another scheme at work here. He also denies the word of God to relieve your fears. He denies the word of God to relieve your fears. He distorts the word of God to raise doubt and denies the word of God to relieve your fears. Proverbs chapter nine, verse 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14 says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Does the fear of God in those two passages look like a bad thing or look like a good thing? 
Terrifying as it is, it's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. It's a thing that you need. And it's a thing that until you have it, you have not escaped from being a fool. The beginning of wisdom. You have not learned the first thing of wisdom until you have learned to fear the Lord. So what does the serpent do? You see, he will deny the word of God to relieve our fear of God. You know that God already gave a command to Adam. And Adam had told, it is clear that Eve wasn't made when God spoke that word to Adam. God spoke the word to Adam about the commandment. And then afterward, he fashioned Eve. And so it would seem to be that Adam would have then spoken God's word that God spoke to him to his wife. He would have made his, the word of God known to his wife. Uh, and, and so in that way, she would be aware of it as well. And you can imagine that if they're told by God that they can eat from literally every tree except one, but if they do eat from that one, which is the exception, they will die. Do you think that they would maybe have a little bit of the fear of God in them to get anywhere near that tree? Yeah. And as long as that fear was in them and it was healthy and it was strong, how are you going to convince them to do that? I was just told by God, if I, if I eat from that, we're dead. So what does Satan do? He denies the word of God to relieve their fear. Satan says, the serpent says to the woman, excuse me, verse 4, you will not surely die. And so the serpent denies the word in order to relieve their fears. If God told them that they must not eat from it. I think that the fact that, and here's something that's interesting about Eve's response is that she adds this little phrase, neither shall you touch it, right? God said God, that, was, that was not included in the original command, the you shall not touch it part. And so there's some debate, a question of, you know, did she add it? Did Adam add it? Where did it enter? Did God say it? What's going on here? But I think however you resolve that or wherever you land on that, I think the thing that that, is, that, that statement is indicative of at, at least is their fear of God. You don't eat it and you don't even touch it. How are you going to get man to do that then if he's fearing the Lord? You have to deny the word of God to relieve the fear. Do you see the, as you look at your life and you hear the voices around you, do you hear people denying the word of God in order to relieve your fear of God and to relieve others' fear of God? Do you have a sensitive heart that's humble, that trembles before the word of the Lord so such that if some other voice comes, whether it's a person or on TV, YouTube, TikTok, or even if it were a talking serpent or even angelic being, if they were to come to you and speak to you and deny the clear word of God and seek to relieve your concern and your fear of God, then beware. Beware. Stand firm. Don't stand for it. Don't give in. Stick with the voice of God. Stick with the voice of God. 
Let those other voices expose themselves as fakes and frauds because they deny the word and try to relieve you of fears and get you to stop trusting and fearing the Lord. Because when you fear the Lord, then you care about what's doing right in his eyes. Because you know that he will call you to account. Think about common claims that are made in the valley of decision when temptation and trials are, 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 are facing us or the different lies that, that people make, denials they make about, about God that is to relieve our fear that then opens the door to make sin permissive, permissible. This won't hurt anyone. You won't really die. You won't, you won't really stand before him as judge. God doesn't really care about what you do with your body. God is love. He won't judge you. There is no hell. There is no hell. You're not, you surely, you surely won't go to hell for, for not believing in Jesus. And, and even if, if hell was, was, was real, then, then that would just show that God was not because he could never do that to someone. And if hell was real and you would go there, then at least it would be more exciting than boring old heaven. You do not really have to trust in Jesus alone for salvation. Surely all roads lead to Rome. Surely in the end, everyone will be saved and he will not punish forever. And hell will, uh, if it is there, only be for a time until, until finally he frees us all from it. We're all on a spiritual journey. We're all going to make it home. God loves you too much to judge you. There's nothing to fear. He'll always forgive you. It won't be that bad. You've heard these things and things like them. Are they not clear examples of other voices other than the voice of God seeking to get us, seeking to deny the clear word of God in order to relieve our fear of God? To get you to sin now to get you to rebel now, to get you to take that little bait and boom, now. He's after us and he speaks with a forked tongue. He denies the word and seeks to relieve your healthy and proper fear of God. But that's just prongs one and two. There's a third. Do not be ignorant of the serpent's schemes. He distorts the word to raise doubt, denies the word to relieve fears. And lastly here, he deceives the people of God to maximize appeal. He deceives the people of God to maximize appeal. You see, the serpent is so sneaky that he does not only distort the word to bring doubt, deny the word to relieve fears, but also in the same attack, deceives the people of God to maximize appeal to get them to sin. Look at how he does that in the response to Eve. Verse four, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see here, Satan moves from distorting or denying to outright lying. His deceit is on full bore. It would not be simply enough to deny the word without any explanation, as that would simply appear to just sort of even the tabs or even the scales, right? If God said, you will die, you will surely die, and, and the serpent's saying, you will not surely die, it's just kind of even. 
And so Satan has to go a little bit deeper and give a, a basis or a reason that that is the case. And here he turns into the accuser because he accuses God of not telling the truth. And also he accuses God of not being out for their best interest. He accuses God again of being, being, uh, of being stingy and not being generous and not wanting to give everything that he has to them. And so the snake sells the lie. He adds the grounds for believing that you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan says, essentially, you will not surely die because God knows more than you. And he hasn't told you this, but he's not really your friend. If he cared about you, he wouldn't hold this back from you. And guess what? It's your lucky day. I'm going to be your friend. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. He doesn't want you to be like him. He, he knows that if you eat of that tree, that you'll be like him. You will be equal to him. You will be just like him, knowing good and evil. And so this evil line of deception ties back in with the first that insinuated God was holding back or restricting something and thus should be doubted since he didn't let Adam and Eve eat from everything. It's not only that he didn't let them eat from everything, but also on top of that, he has, he's involved in this conspiracy against them. And so distorting the word and denying the word, he now deceives the people of God to maximize the appeal. This is what he loves to do. Just how appealing is this offer that Satan is making? It's as appealing as God is above heaven and earth. However big the gap is between create, cre creator and creature, that's how appealing this offer is. That a creature could climb, could ascend to arrive at equality with God if we just eat this tree. And to be able to find out that God was trying to hide this from us and we can go around him and disobey his word and we can be wiser than God and by doing so that we will be elevated in our knowledge to the same status that he holds. What an opportunity. Who knows how long it'll be available for. And if God got wind that we are thinking this way, he might even take the tree away. There's no time to waste. Exaltation to God-like status has never been closer than now. Just take, just eat, just pass. What a deceiver. One of the ways that this deception is seen, and it's so subtle, but it's the way that his question assumes already that they are not like God right now. The serpent has sneakily and craftily undermined the identity of man and woman spoken earlier in Genesis 1:26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. In the image of God, he made them male and female. He created them. God made them already like himself. 
They already bore the image and likeness of God, and yet the sneaky, the sneaky serpent sold ice to an Eskimo. They were made in God's image already like God, made to perfectly dwell in relationship with God as much as a creature could. And they knew already good and evil. How? They knew already good and evil because God placed that tree in the middle of the garden, that tree that's called the knowledge of good and evil, and he made it very clear that to eat from all the other trees and not this tree, guess what that is? That's good. And to eat from this tree, guess what that is? That's evil. And so they could have an understanding, while not an experiential understanding of evil. They could have an understanding. They were fully equipped with the command of God, with the clear statement that God had given, with the, with the lavish provision, and with the clear, narrow prohibition. They had everything they needed. They didn't need to understand anything else. That's all they needed to understand what good and evil was right there. And yet, the serpent deceives them, assumes for them that they should be discontent with where they are. He lies that they can ascend to the same ranks as God and that there's a way to do that and the way to do that will be through disobeying the word of God. Guys, we have to learn this lesson. We cannot be ignorant of the serpent's schemes Likeness to God, closer likeness to God, will never, ever, ever come through disobedience to his word. There will be no gift from God that we can get if we disobey his word. God will not bless that. You will not climb higher. You will sink lower. This is exactly what Satan wants. Don't be ignorant of his schemes. So already being made in the image of God and knowing good and evil, Satan deceives them, maximizing the appeal of eating from that tree to such a degree that they found it irresistible and desire was conceived and gave birth to sin. You know how the story goes. When you survey your life right now, do you think that that serpent is not also trying to use people, speak with voices to you, and make sin appealing, to make it appear irresistible, to make it appear like you cannot be happy, you cannot be truly happy, you cannot be truly fulfilled, you cannot have all that you were longing for if you don't have this thing. So you covet. And you're dissatisfied, and you're upset, and you're mad, and you're envious, and you're full of strife, in anger because you don't have those things. But you want them so bad because they're so appealing to you. This is what the enemy does. He sells the lie. He makes sin 
He maximizes the appeal of sin. Look at how great. Look at how fun. Look at how much enjoyment you could be having if you were to just lie. If you were to just be dishonest. If you were to just stay out a little bit later tonight. If you were to just have one more drink. If, if you were to just come to, come to one more party. If you were to just work a little bit harder to the neglect of your family. If you would just fill in the blank. Oh, it's appealing, church. The world, the flesh, the devil are all maximizing the appeal of sin so that you will dive in. Galatians chapter 5 says, but I walk, but I say, Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And if you, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are the things that the world is trying to make appealing to us. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Oh, friends, if you're in Christ, put all those desires completely to death. Oh, you see them rear their ugly head, put them to death, squash them, stomp them. Uh, you need to be like Pastor Kevin Bryan at Law for Tree with a rattlesnake under his boot. <laughs> stomp it out. Because that's what Adam should have done in the garden. Where was he? How come in Genesis chapter 3 up to this point, there's only two voices? Why? Is he being passive? Is he being deceived? Is he unsure? Has he doubted? Has he, has he lost his ability to comprehend in his own mind and discern truth from error and have the, the courage to do and speak and stand for, for what is right? Has, has the sin become appealing to him? That he doesn't want to put up a fight against it? That he's intrigued and interested too, just as much as her? We don't ultimately know. But God gave him the command. And so if there's any confusion, if there needs to be any clarity, if there needs to be protection offered and brought through this word spoken to reaffirm the clear word of God, it needed to be Adam. And he didn't do it. So he and his wife fell. 
when it comes to a successful defense against the serpent and his schemes. Unfortunately, we don't find it in our chapter. And church, if, if there's not another chapter in the Bible where this serpent is overcome and where he's defeated and where his temptation is not victorious over man, then we will be forever in his bondage. But praise be to God that there's another chapter, Christian, in your Bible where he is conquered, where he, where he tempts and does not win and does not have the victory, though he tries to distort and raise doubt, though he tries to deny and relieve fear, though he tries to deceive and maximize appeal, when he tries to do this to Christ, the second Adam, whom the God gave us, the Son of God, who came and was the promise of the promised seed that would crush the head of the serpent, we saw them go head to head in battle in Matthew, and we see the Lord overcome. He challenged the son. They challenged Christ on his identity to, to raise doubt. If you're really the son of God, then prove it. Are you really the son of God? Then prove it. You've been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and I know that you're starving. Turn these loaves. Excuse me. Thank you. I love the help you guys give me. Turn these, turn these stones into loaves of bread. Jesus responded, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. You guys got to love that response. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Oh, what if Adam and Eve would have had that on their lips? <laughs> man, we do not live by knowledge alone. We do not live by wisdom alone. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God, we do not live by renown alone. We don't live by prosperity or, 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 or uh, having great authority or, or any sort of status or position alone. We live alone off the life-giving word of God. Satan goes on. He tries to challenge the son's trust in God. And God's promise to rescue the son, as mentioned in one of the Psalms, and bring him to the, he, so he brings him to the top of the temple and tells him to throw himself down and cites this, this psalm to him. If you really believe this, won't you do it? Doesn't this promise that, that the son will be protected? If, if, if God is real and you are his son, then he will protect you and he will not let your foot strike the ground. You don't need to be afraid of any harm. Satan had tempted the son, again, to deny the word. Not the word of the promise of protection, but rather another place. The word that says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So that's exactly what Jesus told him. And then lastly, Satan tried one more effort to deceive Christ, and that was to maximize the appeal. The devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. What could be more appealing to that? Jesus, you'll get it all right now. Without the pain, without the suffering of the cross. We're going to create a little shortcut for you. And we're going to bring you right through and give you full dominion and reign over all things right here. Except you must bow down to me and worship me. 
Jesus had no intention. That offer had no appeal to him. Why? Because he knew the word of God and he had it hidden in his heart and he lived off the word of God alone. He says, you shall not worship the Lord your God, or excuse me, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. And by the way, Satan, I have no intentions on having all the kingdoms of the earth in submission to you. I have every intention to have all the kingdoms of the earth in submission to my father. So no, I'll not have any part in your trick, your scheme. And the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Church, this is the perfect, the proper way to stand against the schemes of the serpent. You know the word. You don't be ignorant of his schemes. You fight with scripture. You cling to God. You cling to his word. You cling to his commandments. And you don't let go. Don't let go. Do not turn aside to the left. Do not side turn to the right. It doesn't matter if you're young. It doesn't matter if you're old. It doesn't matter if you're in the middle. Wherever you are, whatever age you are, whatever place you are, do not let go. Go, there's nothing better for you than to live off the word of God. Doesn't matter what's offered to you. You do not need to prove who you are to anyone. You hold on to the word of God. You let God honor you and exalt you when it's the proper time, which he promises to do. This Jesus overcame Satan and conquered him. He did not give up into temptation. He had total, complete victory in every head-to-head battle that they had. And Jesus, we're told, was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so God highly exalted him so that through faith in him, in him alone, all of us can have forgiveness of sins and be made right with God just by faith in Christ. This is incredible. Jesus is the truth. He spoke the truth. And he said, if you abide in me, you, excuse me, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So the most important thing for you to know is Christ, is the truth that is in Jesus that he is the way and the truth and the life and that he is the only way to the Father and that he is the one who the serpent, the main work, the primary work that the serpent is doing right now presently in this world is seeking to deceive people about the identity of Jesus Christ. Paul describes Satan in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, calling him the God of this age, or the, uh, we would understand the God of the evil age that is right now. It says in verse 4, in their case, the God of this world or age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what's the main thing he's trying to do now? Keep you in the dark about Christ. Keep you in the dark. Acts 4.12, there's there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He does not want people hearing, knowing, believing that great gospel. 
And God, just as he declared that eating the fruit of the tree of life would lead to death, so now he has promised that if you do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the cross of Christ, you will not live, but you will perish eternally. In other words, if you do not believe and consume and take in this, by faith the sacrificial substitutionary work of Christ, wherein he paid for your sins for Adam and Eve and every single one of us who has been deceived into sin and has committed sin where we didn't listen to the voice of God and were wise in our own eyes instead, in all of those situations, every single one of them, Christ paid for us on the tree. And if we will believe that, then God's wrath no longer abides over us. And we are no longer in the dark, but we have come to the light and we are now walking in the truth because we have believed that Christ bore our sins inside his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And so we are now saved, set free from the lies and bondage of the serpent to serve the living and true God, waiting for his son from heaven with open eyes, humble, God-fearing hearts, prepared to take a stand against the devil and his lies. So make it your aim today, despite all the voices around you, to maintain pure devotion to Christ. Pure devotion to Christ. Father, we thank you for your church, Lord. We pray that you would bless your church, that we would stand and sing with great joy, with great amounts of gratitude and thanksgiving, because we've heard your voice, and we have salvation through your Son. And your word, O oh Lord, is life to our souls. Lord, may the enemy not snatch the gospel seeds that have been sown in any hearts in this room this morning. And Lord, would you please, by your grace, bring into your kingdom anyone here, Lord, who has not yet put their faith in your son, that they might be set free, Lord, and enjoy knowing you and walking in the truth, O oh Lord. And would you please give your church boldness to lift their voices, to not be passive, but to speak what is right, to fear you, to cling to you, to hold on to your word, and to stand firm against the attacks, against the deceit, against the deception of the devil, so that we might not be led astray from pure devotion to Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.